Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Um, we are continuing our series with ASTS, and today's um, session is going to be talking about donation. We are very honored to have uh, Dr. Rob Montgomery here with us today to join us on this um, session with ASTS. Dr. Montgomery is a multi-organ transplant surgeon at NYU Langone. He did his medical school from University of Rochester and residency fellowship at Hopkins University. His research focuses on stem cell therapies, gene and cell-based therapies in transplant. He also runs multiple clinical trials for novel desensitization therapies. And recently, he became a transplant recipient himself. We will talk more about that. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on Behind the Knife, Dr. Montgomery. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Starting off our case um, study from the past four weeks, we're still talking about the clinical issues. And today in particular, we would like to talk about kidney donation. So there are not enough options. There are not enough organs, correct? And so how long do kidney recipients typically wait for a diseased donor kidney? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the demand for um, kidneys um, far exceeds the supply. Um, and so, you know, over the years, we've had to be very um, innovative and inventive about um, trying to expand um, donation, but we still are falling uh, far short of uh, the mark because the need really has been rising exponentially over the last decade and a half. The average um, kidney uh, potential kidney recipient on the transplant list now um, will wait somewhere between six and seven years um, for a kidney transplant. And about 40% of them will either die or become too sick um, to receive a transplant. Um, and that, I think that's a, a really um, staggering um, statistic. And I think we pay far um, too little attention to the patients who are dying um, waiting for organs. What are some of the options we have to increase the numbers of kidneys that are available for transplants? Yeah, so um, over the years, um, you know, I've been quite involved with um, new innovations um, starting back to the mid-90s when um, Lloyd Ratner and uh, Luke Cavusi um, did the first uh, laparoscopic uh, nephrectomy, um, and I was fortunate enough to to work with them um, in that uh, early series of uh, of patients. And um, you know the the intent there was to try to um, make the uh, operation for the live donor um, less of a burden and um, thereby you know allow a greater number of uh, people, um, particularly people who, you know, uh, were self-employed or um, had uh, child care responsibilities and, and couldn't, you know, take several months off of um, their work, 
um, and endure, you know, this major operation um, that was required um, during the uh, era where live donation was done through an open incision. Um, and I think that had an impact on um, the number of, uh, of live do donors, which increased pretty steadily throughout the 90s and early 2000s. Um, things like um, a CDC um, or PHS high-risk uh, donors, um, really looking at what the actual risk involved um, in using organs that um, had um, the potential to um, transmit viral illnesses uh, during a window period, trying to narrow that window period um, and uh, determine what the actual risk is and re reassure patients that it's far safer um, to receive one of these organs than it is to um, wait on the list additional time. Um, and then more recently, when we developed um, a cure for hepatitis C um, using um, hepatitis C organs that were previously being discarded um, for uh, patients who were hepatitis C negative and then treating them after the transplant. And, you know, the development of effective hepatitis C um, uh, medications really coincided uh, with the very unfortunate um, increase in um, opioid deaths um, from uh, drug overdoses. Um, and about 25% of um, the uh, uh, overdose victims are hepatitis C positive. So we had this tremendous increase in the number of hepatitis C organs and 50% of them were being discarded because the number of donors greatly exceeded the number of hepatitis C positive recipients. So, you know, now we're using these organs um, in hepatitis C negative uh, recipients. In fact, in the last year and a half here at NYU Langone, we've done over 100 transplants um, with hepatitis C positive organs and the hepatitis C negative recipients. And I myself was the 14th um, subject in, in our initial um, study um, I received a hepatitis C positive um, heart um, from a, uh, a donor who had overdosed from uh, heroin. So those are some of the things that, you know, are being done uh, to try to um, expand um, uh, the, the organ pool. But, um, you know, unfortunately, um, it never really catches up with... Um, uh, the the demand um, and on the live donor front, in addition to the laparoscopic nephrectomy and making it um, easier for people to donate organs, um, we also have been expanding um, kidney pair donation and um, desensitization for uh, patients who have uh, incompatible um, live donors. Any special considerations for people who want to be living donors? So um, people who want to be a living donor um, really need to be, you know, committed to the process because it's not easy. And it's, it's, it's not easy for a reason um, because I think, you know, we, we have to be really sure that it's, it's safe for that person to donate. So 
there's a lot involved um, in donating an organ, um, but it's tremendously um, fulfilling for those who do. Um, and, you know, basically they just have to be healthy and we have to um, really look closely at many aspects of their health and be sure that they're um, not themselves um, going to be at risk of developing uh, kidney disease in the future. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's a, um, it's a, a live donation is a, just an unbelievable gift to the recipient because the recipient is able to get transplanted right away. Many, in many cases, um, before they go on dialysis, um, and that improves their long-term outcome tremendously. Um, and they don't have to wait, you know, up to six or seven years for a deceased donor organ, in which, uh, during which time their, their health, uh, you know, will often, um, uh, you know, really um, decompensate. And um, we know that, that uh, dialysis uh, it puts tremendous stress on the body and, and um, people develop um, uh, numerous um, comorbidities during the time that they're on dialysis. So with live donation, you can spare, you know, your loved one or friend or even somebody you don't even know, um, you know, that um, high level of risk um, and, and just the poor quality of life, too, while they're waiting on dialysis. What uh, other organs could a living uh, donor donate? We talked about they could give one of their kidneys but are there other organs? In addition to um, donating uh, kidneys, um, uh, living donors um, can also donate part of their liver. Um, in some cases, um, parents um, or adults will donate a, um, about 20% of their liver to a child. Um, and then in the case of um, an adult, um, donating uh, a, a portion of their uh, liver to another adult, um, it is a, a pretty substantial um, operation. Um, but for many recipients of, uh, who, who, you know, many liver recipients, um, it is um, really their best shot at living. Um, the way our allocation system is set up now, um, deceased donor organs only go to the sickest patients. And the problem with um, liver disease is that we don't have the equivalent of dialysis. And so when a patient becomes sick enough to um, be prioritized for a deceased donor liver, they're right on the edge of decompensating um, and dying. And so the stakes are extremely high. If you have a live donor, you can get transplanted before you get into that um, predicament um, and you have a much better uh, chance of uh, surviving and a much better outlook. Um, but it is a big operation and you know, oftentimes um, the donor um, has to donate more than half of their liver, but fortunately, with the liver, um, the, the uh, liver regenerates and um, 
will uh, increase in size and capacity. Um, and then the, the, the other organ where there has been a history of um, live donation is lung. Um, it's usually required that there are two donors, two living donors who um, give a portion of um, their lung. Um, and this is kind of has fell out of favor, but there's been some renewed interest now, particularly with um, robotic um, lung surgery. Um, some of the, the um, morbidity that donors were um, having after their, their operation, I think, has been ameliorated with um, robotic surgery. So I, I predict that there will be an increase in, in um, living lung donation um, in, in the future and, and, and a limited number of centers that are highly specialized. There, um, there was a series at the uh, University of Minnesota some years ago of uh, partial uh, pancreas um, living donation, the tale of the pancreas. Um, David Sutherland did over 100 of those. Um, but, um, you know, the, currently we, we, we don't have as much of a shortage of um, uh, pancreata as we do other organs. So uh, that has not really caught on. Thank you so much for enlightening us on that. I had no idea about the lung donation or the tail of the pancreas. Um, sounds like it's going to be a pretty cutting edge uh, research and cutting edge clinical translational research going on in the world of transplant. Um, we would now like to transition to asking you some of your personal questions, talking out a little bit about your career path. And um, so let me start off with our first question. Can you tell us a little bit about your job and what do you do in transplant? Yeah, so I'm, um, I'm the director of the um, NYU Langone Transplant Institute, which is um, a, a, a sort of a um, self-governing uh, institute um, that, you know, um, has a direct reporting structure uh, to the, the leadership. Um, and so it's, um, it's a medical uh, surgical, uh, essentially, a department, um, which I think is pretty unique. And I, I think it gives us a tremendous amount um, of advantage because you know, basically, our institute is structured the way that we practice um, clinical transplantation, which is a medical surgical endeavor. You know, it's it's physicians and surgeons from um, different departments. You know, traditionally from different departments who are are working together um, on this really highly specialized area. So having us all together under one roof really helps tremendously. So I've I've um, you know, I was the inaugural director and um, sort of the architect of th this model. Um, and, um, you know, we've increased the number of transplants that we're doing at NYU from less than 50 to this year, we'll do about uh, 360 solid organ transplants. Um, in terms of just what I do day to day, um, 
you know, obviously running the Institute requires a certain amount of um, administrative tasks and meetings and, um, you know, uh, developing plans and our vision for where we want to go. Um, and I also still do transplants. I, I have pretty much, you know, become a little bit of a one-trick pony and, and as much as I just focus on um, kidney transplants um, at this point. And um, it, I, I'm really interested in really complex kidney transplants, either immunologically or technically. So I do a lot of um, the transplants after desensitization and also patients who are referred here for uh, third and fourth and fifth um, transplants where they have great technical um, challenges. Um, and then I also do research and, and run um, a, a, a large uh, clinical um, trials and clinical research um, unit within the Institute. Do you have one particular patient um, that is, was either immunologically complex or technically uh, complex that you um, that you could tell us about a case? Yeah, well, I think you know, um, I, I've certainly done transplants on patients where they have exhausted you know all their vascular sites um, uh, because of thromboses of their their great vessels, um, and have had to do things like you know, piggyback kidneys on the portal vein um, and, um, you know, do just from a technical standpoint, extremely uh, challenging um, transplants in patients who have hypercoagulable conditions and have uh, thrombosed organs. I think the, the most complex thing that um, we did um, a number of years ago when we first started doing kidney pair donation was a six-way swap, um, which involved 12 operating rooms because at the time when we first started doing these swaps, we did them all simultaneously. So we had 12 operating rooms um, running at the same time. It took over 150 people um, to uh, pull this off and um, we had to do it on on the weekend, on a Saturday, um, because um, it involves so many operating rooms. So, um, that, from a sort of planning technical standpoint, um, that was probably the, the the most complex. And in fact, that got us into the uh, the 2010 Guinness Book of World Records for the most number of transplants done. Um, uh, at the same time in one day. That is very fascinating indeed. I I wanted to, I read up your story on, in the news in Washington Post and New York Times about your hep C um, recipe, uh, recipient of a heart. And can you tell us a little bit about that and uh, how that experience was? And maybe touch on what was the most um, difficult part of that journey? Yeah, so, um, uh, you know, I've had heart disease my whole life. I have a genetic disorder. Um, I found out about it when I was uh, 27 years old when I was an intern at Johns Hopkins and my brother had a sudden death. Um, 
And I was actually the first surgeon in the world to have an ICD, um, an implantable defibrillator placed, um, which at the time was this gigantic device placed in my abdomen, and they had to open my chest. This was when I was a surgical resident. And basically, they said that it wasn't really compatible with um, the life of a surgeon, but um, I, I couldn't accept that. And um, and I, I happened to have a great chairman at the time who gave me a chance to um, prove that I could do it. And f I finished my training. And as they say, the rest is history. But um, so the journey, you know, from um, from that point up until the point when I received my heart transplant um, was at times very difficult because I would have uh, periods of uh, long periods of stability and uh, sort of punctuated by um, a catastrophe like a cardiac arrest. Um, but I did, you know, make it to the point where um, uh, pretty in a pretty miraculous way many times because I um, had seven uh, cardiac arrests over the years um, where I could, uh, where I was in a position to receive a, a heart. Now, I had devoted a lot of my career to, you know, expanding the options um, um, for uh, uh, donation and, and um, the organ, trying to increase the organ supply. And, you know, one of the things I've been very involved in was um, initially using organs from um, donors who had uh, risky behavior that put them at risk for viral transmission. And then later, I was very involved in the um, uh, early um, trials of um, using hepatitis C positive organs into hepatitis C negative recipients and then treating them with a new class of uh, drugs um, that provided a cure. Um, and so it just made perfect sense that I should receive a hepatitis C organ. Um, because, you know, I really, w I would never ask my patients to do something that I wouldn't do myself. Um, so we were using a lot of uh, hepatitis C organs under a, a protocol at the time, you know, when, when I needed a, um, um, a transplant. So I, I um, received a hep C positive organ. I got the disease. Um, I got treated um, starting in the um, hospital and cleared um, the virus uh, within a few weeks um, and took medications for um, two months. And um, in the past year and a half, um, we've done over 100 transplants from hepatitis C positive um, donors. That is an amazing story. And um, I think a real testament to say that you uh, walk the talk and uh, that has to make a big difference to your patients. Just uh, as we start to wrap up, do you have advice for young, um, you know, uh, medical students or surgical residents that are thinking about the field of transplant and uh, anything that you would share with them about the field or your advice as they move forward? Well, I think, you know, what, what I've described um, is really, you know, improving on, you know, the, the untenable situation that we have um, with a shortage of uh, organs. It's sort of like making fossil fuels better and better. But really, you know, what we need is the equivalent of solar and wind. Um, we need a sustainable, renewable source of organs. So in the future, I think that's going to be 
xenotransplantation using the genetically modified pigs um, uh, for um, uh, human transplantation and also bioartificial organs, which um, there's tremendous amount of progress that's being made. So I think that's the future. But as far as you know, the what we're the the other major unmet need is long-term outcomes. We've become really good at at transplanting patients and getting them through the transplant and the first year, um, and that's where we focused a lot of our attention. But um, we haven't really made significant inroads at five, ten, fifteen, twenty years after the transplant, and we also really have not focused enough on the patient experience and what they, what patients think um, are important aspects of um, their recovery from the transplant and, and um, you know, what do they believe the, that that's important in terms of uh, where we should be focusing our goals. Um, so I'm spending a lot of time now looking at that. And, you know, I'll just give you one example. After a kidney transplantation, only about 20% of our patients go back to work. Okay, so why is that? Well, we don't really know. Um, you know, it's it's partly because they sit on dialysis for a long period of time and have to go on disability, and then they become afraid of releasing disability because of the uncertainty after a transplant and the amount of work it takes just to stay healthy and keep your doctor's appointments and get your medications and take them. Um, but I also suspect, suspect that a lot of these patients are having um, side effects from their medications, their immunosuppressive medications. And so the, the, the point of saying this is that we really need to focus more on the patient and what's important to the patient. And we need to talk to the patients and find out what their experience is. We're not paying enough attention to that. So what I would encourage the medical students and and Surgeons who are interested in, in this field to do is uh, really think about um, ways that we can improve on these long-term outcomes and um, and engage patients in, in that process and really try to understand what their experience is like. Because I can tell you from my standpoint as a patient, it's not it's not been easy. Um, and um, you know, I think. Um, that that's that's another frontier um, that lies ahead of us. Well, thank you so much for sharing your professional expertise in this subject as well as your personal story. We really appreciate your time and thank you so much for joining us on Behind the Knife. We'd like to welcome you to another episode of Behind the Knife. Um, we continue our collaboration with the American Society for Transplant Surgeons and have with us today Chuck Rickert. He's currently a fourth year categorical general surgery resident at Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, Chuck went to undergrad at NYU and he completed his MD PhD at Washington University in St. Louis. Currently, he's gonna be applying for his abdominal transplant surgery fellowship later this year. Chuck, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. It's a pleasure to be on the, on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. So Chuck, when did you know that you wanted to be a transplant surgeon? Yeah, I think the, the question actually starts as when did I decide I wanted to be a surgeon even? Um, it was actually quite late uh, in the process. As you mentioned, I had done an MD-PhD at, at Wash U, and it wasn't actually until I was into the clinical years. So it was during my ninth year of medical school um, that I did um, 
uh, surgery and, and really fell in love with um, operating. Um, and uh, a couple of years before that, as we can talk about, I was a non-directed donor and had uh, gotten involved in transplantation and um, and really could see uh, the amazing impact that it had on the lives of individuals who received their organ transplant. So it uh, seemed just like a, a natural progression. Tell us a little bit about your PhD and what did you study? Sure. So I did a, a PhD in immunology at, at WashU. Um, I worked with uh, a really outstanding uh, researcher um, and intellect, uh, Dr. Robert Schreiber. Uh, he focuses primarily on cancer immunology, and uh, that's along the lines of what I worked on. I actually worked on a, a project focused on breast cancer um, and some of the signaling pathways involved there, but the overall thrust of the lab was cancer immunology, which is in many ways just the other side of the, the coin from uh, transplant immunology. In cancer immunology, you're looking to figure out how to overcome the local immune suppressive environment of cancer in order to treat those, that disease. Whereas in transplant immunology, you're looking to establish that type of a, a local immune suppressive environment. So those are pretty, pretty synonymous things. Did you do any research during your surgical residency or did you leave all that during your medical school years? Yeah. So when I began my time at Massachusetts General Hospital, I, I was, uh, I hadn't decided yet whether or not I was going to take time to do research for sure. Um, the At, at MGH, there's a, a great transplant research center called the Center for Transplantation Sciences. Um, and um, there's a, some great work being done by uh, Dr. Jim Markman, who's the chair of the, of the division there. And um, really caught my interest and, and decided this was something that I wanted to spend some time doing as well. So I did decide to take two additional years off during uh, during residency to do more research. That's very interesting. Um, tell us a little bit about your own experience with organ donation. Yeah, so as I kind of hinted at earlier, um, when I was doing my, my PhD, uh, there was a uh, radio program on uh, that I was listening to one day while I was doing tissue culture work. And uh, on the, uh, the radio program, there was a discussion between two transplant surgeons, uh, Dr. Frank Delmonico and Dr. Um, Arthur Mattis. And they were discussing actually whether or not we should start to pay individuals for organ donation. And uh, it was actually during that discussion uh, that they highlighted the incredible benefit for the recipients and that the overall risks for the donors are extremely low. And so it was with uh, that in mind that it just sort of dawned on me that this was something that I should consider doing. If it's such a great benefit for the recipient and, uh, and a low risk for the donor, uh, then it seems like something I should pursue. And so I uh, went about sort of doing some research to find out if the risks were truly as low as they um, were, were mentioned during the radio program and then uh, ended up working with the transplant team at WashU and, and going through with transplantation. This is about 11, 11 years ago now. 
I said that that's an incredible story. Uh, first of all, what are your, some of your concerns about going through that process initially? I know it was 11 years ago, but can you comment on that? And then what are your recommendations for somebody who one to may register uh, to become a deceased owner af afterwards, obviously, and do they have to wait to renew their driver's license? Yeah, no, that's great, great question. So uh, obviously, I had a lot of thoughts uh, during the process um, when I when I decided to do this. Uh, first and foremost was whether or not the uh, the risks were really quite as as low as they uh, were purported to be, um, and uh, and they really are very low for the. Uh, Donor, not to get into too many specific details, but um, <clears throat> uh, the uh, the risk for uh, donation of a of a standard um, healthy individual who goes through the entire uh, process is um, just a very small increase compared to the uh, uh, the non donation um, process. So let me just rephrase that: uh, that uh, essentially the um, risks of donating um, have been identified as just being very small and that if you're a healthy enough individual to undergo donation, then the impact of having a single uh, kidney um, is is quite small. Uh, for me, in some ways, the, the concern was just going through with surgery itself. I had never been a patient before. It was kind of scary in some ways to undergo general anesthesia and um, to sort of see what that was like to, to be a patient for a, a short period of time there. And uh, I found that you learn a lot about yourself uh, when you're a patient. I uh, found that I really do not like pain very much, it turns out. I'm, I'm kind of a wimp, but, um, <clears throat> but that you can get through it and that it's amazing the impact that the physicians and the nursing care and everyone in the hospital can have on your experience uh, during that time. Um, you, you asked about uh, thoughts and recommendations for uh, individuals who are considering being a deceased donor. Um, I think that uh, for any becoming any type of a donor, it, it's important to just go out and get the, the information. Um, and, and it is definitely a personal decision that um, one makes. Um, I, I do um, encourage everyone, though, that's listening to uh, absolutely consider doing it. Um, as I think most people are aware, there's a huge uh, need for organs in the United States. Uh, there's a huge backlog of potential uh, recipients and people whose lives would be saved uh, if the organs were available. And uh, over the years, the, the process has become much simpler with uh, the ability to um, register to be a donor um, when your driver's license is up, just as you'd mentioned. Um, but you can also now, thanks to the Internet, you can just go to the website registerme.org and uh, fill out the uh, information there to become a deceased donor uh, registration uh, or I, I should say, uh, you can just go to registerme.org in order to become a uh, registered as a deceased donor. Um, so it's really a pretty simple process now. I, I think that I would encourage um, anyone who is considering it to also uh, spend a, a lot of time uh, discussing things with their family and making sure that um, that everyone understands sort of what. Uh, one's wishes are uh, for that period. Um, 
and um, and then if there are additional questions, um, there's a wealth of information through UNOS and through the uh, local transplant centers. Well, well, Chuck, I just have to say, I mean, what what you've done in your life um, is is clearly a, a markedly selfless act, and 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 even once more by the fact that you didn't even know the individual that they're giving the kidney to. Um, some people do it because of their loved ones and they fulfill their need to obviously help their loved ones, but you didn't even know the individual. And, and um, certainly, uh, you know, us in the transplant community are very grateful for people like you. I just wanted to take a time to thank you for your selfless act. Um, well, we're gonna thanks. We're going to shift gears a little bit and just talk about, you know, organ, organ transplant, a little bit about organ um, allocation itself. So can you tell us a little bit about how organs are given to people that need them um, aside sure. from living donation? So people need transplant, liver, kidney, pancreas, heart, lung transplant. How are the actual organs taken from donors to the recipients? Yeah, uh, so it is obviously a, a very complex um, system that has a lot of moving parts. And, and um, on the potential recipient side, it, it normally starts with uh, an individual who has uh, organ failure being referred by their physician, whether it's their primary care doctor or their nephrologist or hepatologist or cardiologist, um, referring them to a, uh, a specific transplant center. Um, at that transplant center, then uh, there's a multidisciplinary team that works up the, the, the patient to understand if they would be suitable for a transplant. And so that involves identifying if the uh, individual um, uh, has uh, disease failure or, or organ failure that um, would benefit from uh, the transplant. And then also understanding uh, if there are other medical conditions that the, the potential recipient has that uh, would uh, make it not suitable for them to receive uh, an, an organ. Um, and then as part of this as well, of course, is there, there are efforts to understand <clears throat> um, the support structures and the social uh, situations for the patient to make sure that uh, the transplant center is really providing everything that a potential recipient would need uh, to have a successful transplant. Um, and then once the individual has gone through that screening process, uh, then the individual transplant centers will decide whether or not to, to list uh, the individual for transplantation. Uh, once they have done that, then their, their um, <clears throat> information is um, passed on to the local organ procurement organization, or OPO, and uh, they're sort of put into a master list for the region. And this is important because then uh, the organ procurement organization is the organization that coordinates the actual procurement of the, of the organs. So when an individual uh, passes and uh, they were uh, generous and had elected to be a donor, um, the hospital at which they pass contacts the organ procurement organization, uh, the local organization, and then um, <clears throat> that organization will uh, do some initial screening to understand if the, uh, per the potential donor is a, uh, a good uh, candidate for donation. 
And uh, if so, then they look at that list that was generated of, of potential uh, recipients and they contact the, the transplant centers uh, where those uh, or where that potential recipient has been um, listed. Uh, and then they work with the, the, the transplant center to um, <clears throat> coordinate the actual procurement of the organs. Um, and then uh, after that, then it's just a matter of, of physically getting the surgical teams to the location for the donor, <clears throat> um, taking out the, the organs during the procurement operation, and then transporting them back to the uh, hospital where the potential recipient is. So there are a lot of lot of players there, but uh, really it, it works um, remarkably well given the the complexity of the situation, where you can have potentially multiple teams from multiple hospitals that are um, receiving organs um, from the same donor. So an individual donor is able to benefit the lives of many many. Uh, individuals and uh, the system is such that it actually is able to facilitate that. So it's pretty, pretty remarkable. Yeah, the main power that goes into this and the network it has created is just incredible. Could you talk to yeah. us more about the types of diseased donation um, that are available and do the do the outcomes get affected by the type of donation that you're the type of organ you're getting? Sure. Yeah, so there's two broad categories for um, deceased donation. Uh, there are uh, donation after brain death, which is typically called uh, DBD, or donation after cardiac death. Um, so in the let's first talk about that first situation, the donation after brain death. So this is a, um, a situation in which an individual uh, has deceased, uh, has died, and um, the determination has been made based on neurologic criteria. So um, I just want to make sure that there's no there's no questions about terminology. This is an individual who is deceased, and they um, had elected to be a, a donor. And so um, during that period of time, the um, the individual's heart is still beating, and so there is still oxygenated blood being. Uh, pumped to the organs. Oftentimes they are, are pretty much always, they are on a, a ventilator assisting with their respirations, but there is oxygenated blood going to the organs. Um, and so that allows for the least amount of ischemic time or warm ischemic time um, possible for a deceased donation because uh, during the procurement procedure, up until the very last moment, there's oxygenated blood going through those organs. And I should just note that um, a couple of the, the factors that determine how well a, an organ is going to do and uh, what we worry about is, is the ischemia of the organ um, and just essentially the, the amount of time in which there is not oxygenated uh, blood passing through the organ. And that's uh, that itself is broken down into warm ischemic time and cold ischemic time. In uh, warm ischemic time, that's a, a situation in which the organ is at body temperature, uh, <clears throat> but uh, is not oxygenated. And, and that's very detrimental to the, uh, to the organ itself. Um, in contrast, cold ischemic time is when the organ is, quote unquote, on ice and it's uh, cold and there's very minimal 
metabolic activity. And so um, that is, is less detrimental to the outcome of the organ. So in those settings for the donation after brain death, um, there's very little warm ischemic time. The organ goes from being perfused with oxygenated blood to uh, being on ice uh, within a matter of, of, of seconds to minutes. Um, <clears throat> so those um, have the best outcomes. The other category of deceased donation is the DCD donation or the donation after cardiac death. These are situations in which an individual um, is, uh, the, the donor is typically in a hospital, um, but uh, is not, um, is not deceased. Um, they are, they're potentially, or they're most likely on life support machine that is providing um, the uh, support that they need for their heart to keep beating and uh, for them <clears throat> to continue to have oxygenated blood, but they um, uh, are in a irreversible position in which um, there is no expectation that they will be able to resume um, normal functioning and um, and the family and physician team um, have made the determination that the that the patient's wishes would be such that they would no longer want to be in this state. Um, so in this situation, then life support is <clears throat> removed and the individual passes and the determination of death is made by their uh, heart becoming uh, asystolic. Um, <clears throat> in that setting, then, if there's donation, uh, then the entire procurement procedure uh, begins after the cardiac death, after the asystole. <clears throat> and um, so then this involves uh, a little bit more warm ischemic time because you have to um, uh, prep and, and start the entire operation and <clears throat> um, get to the point at which you're able to uh, perfuse the organ with cold preservation solution. And so in those settings, uh, there is a, a greater warm ischemic time. And for the, the success of the transplant, it is somewhat reduced. So um, <clears throat> in the, the setting of the uh, kidneys, um, both the DBD and the DCD uh, kidneys do do uh, quite well. Um, but there is a, a, a short time period in which we're, uh, we feel comfortable removing the kidneys in the donation after cardiac death or the DCD uh, setting. <clears throat> um, but oftentimes they are able to be retrieved because we'll oftentimes wait up to an hour in some centers even longer, up to 90 minutes after asystole before uh, feeling that the organs will not be uh, viable. Um, livers are a little bit more challenging. Um, most centers um, require that in the setting of donation after cardiac death that uh, you're able to remove the uh, organs within 30 minutes of the life support being stopped. Um, and I may have just misspoke, but for kidneys, it's typically within an hour to an hour and a half of uh, life support being uh, discontinued. Um, <clears throat> So in the setting of the liver, it's typically within a half an hour of life support being discontinued. 
and historically, livers from donation after cardiac death uh, uh, donors have run into greater uh, in greater risks of uh, some complications, including um, <clears throat> injuries to the biliary system from uh, ischemia and uh, persistent uh, problems um, with the biliary tree. Um, with more modern understandings of uh, how to um, safely get the organs out in the DCD setting, some of that is, is reduced, but it is something that we're still, we still worry about. Uh, Chuck, can you tell us a little bit about how recipients are given priority for the organs that they're looking for? So how is priority given to patients that need a kidney, a pancreas, and a liver? Sure. So the each of the organs have a slightly different uh, <clears throat> uh, structure for the prioritization. Uh, in the setting of the kidneys, um, they are first... Um, identified by sort of the overall quality of, of the kidneys based on a, a score that is called the Kidney Donor Profile Index or the KDPI. Um, and it just identifies um, which kidneys are sort of the healthiest and are expected to um, be, um, <clears throat> uh, to function for the longest period of time. Um, but in, um, based on those scores, um, the individual, the potential individuals um, <clears throat> are mainly just listed based on the length of time that they have been on the, um, on the waiting list. Um, but again, it does, uh, different populations will uh, be prioritized somewhat differently in which you'll have uh, children, for instance, that are more likely uh, to receive an organ and they'll be given higher priority in the setting of um, individuals that are known to be highly sensitized to uh, to different human tissues. So these are individuals that are more likely to um, reject a potential organ. Um, <clears throat> and uh, thus, if you find an organ that does, does not cross-react, does not lead to an immune reaction, then then they're given a higher priority there. Um, the pancreas uh, allocation is very similar to the uh, kidney process. And then uh, for liver, it's a very different uh, system. For liver, the prioritization is based on the MELD score, uh, which is, stands for the model of end-stage liver disease. <clears throat> so this is a, a score that many of the listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with. Uh, that combines multiple lab values uh, to give sort of an, object, an objective understanding of the degree of liver disease for um, the potential recipient. Uh, and then individuals that have a higher MELD score are thus given a higher priority for uh, transplant. Um, <clears throat> this is a... Uh, a bit of a contentious issue, and there are always uh, multiple changes uh, to this going on. But um, there are other beyond just the standard uh, end-stage liver disease patients that are eligible for liver transplant. Uh, there are other patients, such as patients that have hepatocellular carcinoma and 
um, other diseases that uh, are not uh, ranked based on their MELD score because essentially the MELD score doesn't capture their degree of, of disease severity. So those individuals receive exception points, um, which uh, are then used to sort of categorize them with the other patients that are ranked by MELD. So in liver, it, it's the, the, the overall goal is for it to be based on disease severity um, with the, those individuals at most or at yeah, most risk of dying from their liver disease getting highest priority. So the next step that it's kind of, um, well, I just saw something in the news about this not too long ago, is how long a liver can be out of the body before it's not good to transplant anymore. Can you go into maybe the traditional thought of this, but now we're expanding to even longer times? Yeah, so this is uh, a very active area of research. Um, obviously, we, we want to be able to use as many uh, organs um, <clears throat> as uh uh, as possible, the available, right? So as I mentioned, there's a huge shortage of liver or of livers and other organs for donation. And so we want to be able to use, uh, or we want to be able to keep the organs uh, healthy for as long as possible uh, to get them to potential recipients. So uh, typically, uh, most centers look to transplant uh, a liver that um, has had cold ischemia time and the, the range of four to, to six hours, but uh, now um, many centers will accept a significantly longer cold ischemic time uh, in the order of as long as it's less than 12 hours of cold ischemic time. Um, the upper limit is still an area of, of discussion, but there are several new technologies that are coming out that are allowing us to really kind of push the the boundary of what uh, will work in terms of the length of time um, after procurement. And uh, these are technologies such as uh, uh, normal thermic mach machine perfusion. This is a system in which rather than just uh, removing the organ from the donor and then putting it on ice and uh, looking to preserve it that way, you actually put the liver onto a uh, pump that uh, pumps oxygenated blood through the organ to essentially mimic the in vivo healthy environment that the organ would have been in. And um, so this, of course, then has the, the possibility of greatly extending the uh, length of time that the organ can be out of the body before it needs to get placed in the recipient. The other great piece of this technology is that you can actually monitor how well that liver is functioning while it's on that pump. So you can check to see if the liver is actually making bile, is it clearing lactate, <clears throat> um, and is it uh, behaving as a healthy uh, liver is expected to behave. And a really outstanding feature of that is that it uh, may be possible in the future to uh, identify donor organs that would potentially have been um, discarded in the past because they were thought to not be a healthy enough organ. Well, now we could put those onto a machine perfusion pump, see how well they behave 
um, on that pump system. And if they are behaving as a healthy uh, liver should, then they can be used for transplant. So it has the possibility to both uh, improve the amount of time that we have to get the organ into the recipient, but then also to expand um, the the pool of organs that are available for transplant. That was an excellent uh, description of uh, normothermic perfusion system, and uh, can't wait to see what this t- new technology uh, holds in the future. Thank you so much, Chuck, for joining us today. Uh, we really appreciate your time and. Um, uh, lots of really good information on this on this episode. So thanks for joining us. Until next time, dominate the day.